Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of The Informed Catholic. My name is Ned Jabbar. This is going to be episode 57 of The Informed Catholic, episode 57. Well, today I got two articles, all right, and I got some scripture to read. You could say this is uh, proof why we need catechism, why we need instruction on the faith, why we need to understand what we believe. And it's also, it convinces me on the serious abuse that is happening within Catholicism. Um, and the abuse is happening from both ends, top, bottom, and bottom, I would say, to the middle, to those uh, who are uncertain of what they what they believe. Uh, I could be my interpretation could be wrong, but I do believe it comes down also from the bottom as well. All right, what am I mean by from the top? From clergy who deliberately abuse church teaching, especially on the Eucharist, and also from among the clergy, which is why I mean by the bottom, mainly the elite, I would say. The elite like Nancy Pelosi, the elite uh, certain celebrity or political groups. Maybe the bottom is not right, but let's put it this way. From among the sheep, wolves in sheep's clothing, which our Lord warned us about. Um, the article I have, I have two, one from crisis magazine, which is commenting on the America magazine article. I probably should read the America magazine first because the priest there is commenting that no one should be banned from Holy communion, which is completely, absolutely wrong. Uh, this is basically an attack on Archbishop Salvatore Corleone of San Francisco, who banned, who excommunicated Nancy Pelosi. She did it to herself from receiving Holy Communion because of her stance on abortion and her stance on same-sex uh, same-sex marriage, homosexual sodomy. Uh, let's put it that way. Now, he's right to do it. He's right to do it because it is within his right according to canon law. Now, this, what is this? Why? Think about it. You can't, you cannot, certain people have this power. They want to, they want to believe they have a right to decide when religion can come into politics and when religion cannot enter into politics. But you come to June, which is the month of the sacred heart of Jesus, and you can bring sodomy into it you can bring sodomy 
into the arena of of the American uh, public. It's basically love of the world. You know, uh, LGBTQ, whatever you want to say, is right there inside the government. The government is waving rainbow flags on almost every building basically owned by the government from the government down to uh, museums down to uh, I mean I had to go to uh, Upper West Side the other day uh, I had to take a class uh, for my job a training course at the BMW building and there was there was rainbow flags inside the BMW which is basically a car dealership you there was I mean seriously there were people on the subway uh, one woman had rainbow socks on. Uh, there were people with rainbow t-shirts on. They were, I mean, you can't run away. You're bombarded with it all over the place. But you can't bring religion. Well, it's very simple. This is their religion. Sodomy is their religion. It's part of their sacrament. Like abortion is part of their sacrament. Now, they, they can catechize the children on sodomy. So you have it right there. But you can't bring religion into the public arena. You can't bring morality into the public arena. You can't bring sin into the public arena. You cannot bring God, not as a conservative, you cannot bring God into the public arena, but you can bring God if you are an immoral Catholic who's not in good standing obviously you wouldn't be in good standing if you were immoral but you can't you know you can you can bring God as long as you can control him on the leash you can bring religion the same thing control religion by the uh, by the leash so you see the hypocrisy right there you see the hypocrisy right there immoral Sexual lifestyle, yes. A devout religious politician who's faithful to the church, the church's teachings, no. But if you are an immoral politician, you can weaponize religion, use it to your advantage. If you are have immoral sexual views, immoral views about life in the womb, that's okay. That's fine. Because you're using religion as weaponized. This is absolutely the problem we have here. And this is where we have to address these issues. As a Catholic, yes, you got to be careful who you pick. I've been wondering who I'm going to vote for mayor of New York. I mean, governor of New York. The mayor of New York thing has already been done. I didn't even vote for the guy, uh, but Eric Adams, but I went, I actually voted for Sliwa. Now I have to figure out who I'm going to vote for, for the governor, right? You got Rudolph Giuliani with his son. And I don't know if his son is, has that much experience in, um, in politics. He, I'm sure he would do good. But I have to figure out what his stance are. But I'm guessing I'm going to go for this other guy named Harry Wilson. 
who's at least has some experiences in the private sector as a businessman like President Trump. But I also don't know what Harry Wilson's moral uh, moral stances are. What's his stand on abortion? What's his stand on same-sex marriage? You know, what's his views about uh, schools? Uh, does he believe in charter schools where kids, uh, where the parents can get money from their taxes taken from them so they can send their kids to a school of their choice? What's his view about the Second Amendment? These are the things that you have to pick and you have to look at the person's moral stance. If he's weak on one moral stance, especially abortion, he's going to be weak on other moral stances. But I understand it's difficult for, for a lot of politicians to get into the get into get, get elected and be very orthodox. I don't know what if he's a practicing Catholic, what his uh, if he is a practicing Christian, what is his practices? I need to know these things. Sorry. If they can bring sex, uh, uh, their sex lives into the public arena, then I am going to bring my religion into the public arena. Okay, that's it. It's over. There's no more, no more of this compromise. No more of this. You can't bring your religion. No, absolutely not. You bring your sexual immoral lifestyle at the public arena. My religion is right here, right there in the public arena. It's over. I'm not playing this hypocrisy anymore. All right. We're going to uh, read scripture and we're going to get into these. Uh, first, I'm going to read the passages of St. Paul on uh, the Eucharist, and then we're going to go read the articles. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and, kin and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, and they shall be created, O Lord, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, you instructed the hearts of thy faithful by the light of thy Holy Spirit. Grant us by the same Holy Spirit to have a right judgment in all things, and ever rejoice in his consolation. Through Christ our Lord, amen. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us. Saint Joseph, pray for us. Saint Paul, pray for us. Saint Augustine, pray for us. St. Ambrose, pray for us. St. Athanasius, pray for us. And um, St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. St. Michael and our own private guardian angels. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Yeah, so this is it. That's it. There is no more argument about this. All right, they can talk about abortion. Force they want to force Americans to pay through their tax dollars abortion. They want to force Americans to pay for someone else's birth control. All right, where both abortion and birth control are very dangerous, also very dangerous to the woman's body because. Uh, if a young woman has an abortion, it basically what you're doing is, is not just, yeah, you're killing the life in the womb, right? But also 
They want them to get pregnant and they want them. They want them to, to have, they, they want to uh, corrupt them and entice them to, to be irresponsible and to have unprotected sex. They, Planned Parenthood wants that. We know this already. And they want to put them on birth control that could possibly fail because birth control basically messes up your cycle. It messes up your your hormones. And both abortion and birth control increases the chances of risk for breast cancer. Uh, listen to young women uh, uh, talk about this who, who basically uh, a medical uh, student mentioned when you... Uh, they don't tell you. The doctors can't tell you this because the doctors have to push for this product. Doctors have become compromised. They, they, uh, you know, they get a certain um, credit or some kind of money, so they don't tell their patients what the birth control is going to do to them. If you, they say, if you open the package, there's a, a they have to put it in there for legal reasons. Uh, this paper. That gives you what the side effects are. And the side effects basically is ovarian cancer and breast cancer. It messes with your hormones. And they know this. I mean, a couple of years ago, there was a, uh, another particular medical device that was supposed to be, work like a birth control. And it was uh, something they inserted in with women, a medical device that actually caused blood clots and strokes within women. They had to remove it out of the market. They didn't fully test it. You know, it was because their desperation because of investors, because you got a lot of stock investors who want to invest in this particular medical device and they want to make money. So, you know, your well-being, your health, uh, even if it's possibly going to hurt your well-being and health, it's a risk they're going to take until it becomes possibly too much of a risk for their bottom line. So you see what I'm saying? There's a lot of hypocrisy and a lot of things being hidden. And you, with these particular big corporations, they have lobbyists. And you have politicians like Nancy Pelosi and other so-called Christian or Catholic uh, politicians that are not so Christian and not so Catholic who basically get a nice little gift on the side done in a way that doesn't catch the eye of the law. But that's what they do. That's how they wind up rich. Like Barack Obama. Bernie Sanders. They make a lot of money and they make lots of money. Chuck Schumer, he's not Catholic, but still. But you know what I'm saying. Now, they go ahead and they get other gifts, especially from immoral groups like sodomites. They get gifts on the side. And they support them. Nancy Pelosi just went on a drag queen show and said America is all about transvestites. America is all about uh, drag. It's all about uh, LGBTQ. This is a woman who claims to be a devout Catholic and has love in her heart. All right. This is this this woman 
This woman has used religion and hid behind religion. She is a boomer. She is a boomer. One of those generation of kids, of, of people after 1940, after World War II. Let's, let's just rightly say World War II. From 19, possibly 41, 42, uh, up to now, who have grew up, grew up with all their morality of their parents, the same morality and values of their parents, but got corrupted when they entered school, entered college in the 60s. And they got corrupted by a neo form of Marxism. All right, an American form of Marxism that was all hung up and strung up on sexual liberation that basically destroyed the foundations of the Judeo-Christian values that this country was built on, the morality that was necessary to keep a society together. And it was destroyed. They corrupted these kids with sexual revolution liberty, hence Woodstock, hence um, immoral lifestyles, hence everything got destroyed in this country. And ever since then, we have never recovered. It also invaded the church because you had a lot of, a lot of serious, immoral, pedophiles, sodomites who entered the priesthood and are hung up. They can't, they cannot make a decision whether to love or hate God or run, uh, run after their, their, their immoral sexual fantasies. And the truth is they hate God, but they think in their minds psychologically that if they control the highest office in the church, priest, bishop, cardinal, and even the papacy, and let's say be theologians, that they can control God like you, they can control God like you can control a puppet on strings or reprogram a robot. A computer. This is this is the way they think. As long as they control those offices, they control the mind of God. And they can make anything legal if they wanted to. Hence this is this is the situation that we have. This is this is this is the way they think. They really do believe that. This is why they play with they play with theology. They play this is why they're also hung up on Judas Iscariot. Because they know psychologically they are Judases. They know psychologically they are immoral. Probably the character of Judas Iscariot is far more immoral than we than we realize. The Gospels doesn't tell us about his immoral lifestyle. It doesn't tell us what he's been doing with the money on the side. You know? You know, he Christ permitted his presence as an example. If I truly believe that the answer to Judas is looking at these men's uh, own psychological depraved lifestyle. I really truly believe that if we want to know the answer of Judas Iscariot, just look at these men. Look how corrupt they are. And look how they're harming the church. How they're harming uh, those who possibly are weaker of faith. The damages they're, do they're doing. This, this is the answer. Look at Judas, then look at these men, and you have your answer. 
All right, so um, let's go into these readings, and then we're going to go to the articles. I'm sorry it went on for so long, but when these articles caught my attention, I just had to, I had to, I know, it just really upset me because I love the Catholic faith. I love, I love the Christian faith. And I really, it's sad that this is the time that we live in, that we're going through this, but maybe this is, this is the time that God wants us to be here because we have to, we have to combat this. All right. This is from the first letter of Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to, I'm going to start from, um, I'm going to go from verse 14 uh, down to 22. Uh, well, I might go a little further, but let's read this. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, chapter 10, starting from verse 14. The Eucharist, various pagan sacrifices. St. Paul talking here. Therefore, my dear friends, avoid idolatry at all costs. I am talking to you as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The, the cup of blessing, which also can be translated as chalice, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifice sacrifices particip, uh, participants in the altar? What then am I implying? That meat sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I simply mean that pagan sacrifices are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to become partners with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Do we truly wish to provoke the Lord to jealous anger? Are we stronger than he is? Okay, so, um, okay, I'm going to continue a little bit more. Considered idol offerings, going from verse 23. All things are lawful, you may say, but not all things are beneficial. All things may be lawful, but not all things are constructive. No one should seek his own advantage in preference to that of his neighbor. You may eat whatever meat is sold in the market without raising questions on grounds of conscience. For the earth and all, its, all it contains belongs to the Lord. If, any, if an unbeliever invites you to, to a meal and you decide to accept, eat whatever is set before you, without raising any questions on the grounds of conscience. However, if someone says to you, this food was offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it out of consideration for the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. 
I mean the other person's conscience, not your own. For why should my freedom be governed by someone else's conscience? If I partake of the meal with, thank with thankfulness, why should I be criticized for eating food for which I give thanks? Give no offense, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own good, but that of many, so that they may be saved. Okay. We'll end it there, and we'll go to the next um, reading here. Okay, this one here is from chapter 11, and it starts from verse 17, and uh, it's titled over this part here, The Lord's Supper, Sign of Unity. The Lord's Supper, Sign of Unity, First uh, Corinthians chapter 11, starting from verse 17. Now, in giving you this instruction, I cannot praise praise you because your meetings tend to do more harm than good to begin with when you come together in your assembly i hear that there are divisions among you and to some extent i am inclined to believe it there must be such factions among you so that it will become clear to you which groups should be trusted when you do assemble it is not to eat the the Lord's Supper for such a so for such for each of you goes ahead with his own supper and one goes hungry while another has to too much to drink. Do you not have homes in which you can eat and drink, or do you have such contempt for the Church of God that you humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you in this matter? I cannot praise you to proclaim the death of the Lord. For what I received from the Lord, I handed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body. That is for you. Do, th do this in remembrance of me. In the same fashion, after the supper, he also took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. And so, whatever whatever you eat, oh, sorry, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until He comes. Okay, God's judgment on uh, the community. Hold on, I want to make sure the pages didn't get stuck. Okay, God's judgment. On the community, therefore, anyone who eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner is guilty of an offense against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone should examine himself about eat, eating the bread and drinking from the cup. For a person who eats and drinks without discerning the body of the Lord is eating and drinking judgment on himself. That is why so many of you are weak, ill, and a number of you have fallen asleep. If we are to examine ourselves, we should not be condemned. However, when we are judged by the Lord, he is disciplining us to save us from being condemned together with, uh, with the world.
Therefore, brethren, when you come together for the meal, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that, it, so that in assembling you may not incur condemnation. As for the other matters, I will resolve them when I come. <laughs> All right, I'll end it here. So, before we go into the article, okay? Before we go into the article, Paul is Paul is talking about that the liturgy is still pretty much in its early stage, not fully comprehended, not fully understood. All right, among especially among these the Gentiles, um, the sacredness of it is still, I think, early. The Jewish audience, the Jewish Christian audience, not so much. I mean, they're only the only quibbles he has to deal with them is that some of them still want to keep it within um, Jewish liturgical practices, which is just just as fine. It's just as fine, but some are reluctant of abandoning the old kosher laws and everything, and some of the old regulations that get in the way of the gospel of Christ. Um, I don't think even the kosher laws, if they feel comfortable about that, they can feel, then I don't think, I don't think it's such a big deal, but for Gentiles, it was not necessary. And Christ never went, um, uh, Christ gave a, a clear indication that whatever you eat doesn't make, doesn't pollute the body and do not call what God has made unclean. So they got that clear from a revelation given to St. Peter. But the problem is. Paul makes it clear it is the immoral sexual practices. You know, you get people who talk about that Jesus never said anything. That there was um, someone said the other day, a little tongue in cheek. What did Jesus say about homosexuality? And the, um, I think this particular scholar just kept quiet, or I think a politician. I'm not too sure who kept quiet and then he said thank you that's it because he's trying to say that Jesus didn't say anything about homosexuality Jesus did say something but not directly he didn't mention the homosexual he doesn't have to mention the homo homosexual practices because the Jews clearly knew what the law said about homosexuality uh, it was clear it wasn't an argument that had to be brought up but he did say say something about moral sexual practices this we can point to when the pharisees and scribes came to him and asked him about divorce and remarriage giving women the certificate of divorce and then talking about oh who's who's married to who on the day of judgment if a woman was married to several husbands and then jesus point to you are surely wrong for you do not know the scriptures nor understand them for did, did he not in the beginning created them uh, male and female man and woman he made them so therefore what god has brought together let no man put asunder about you know on the day of resurrection did you not read the passage in scripture where he says i am the god of abraham the god of isaac the god of jacob He's the God of the living, not the dead. And then he mentions about the creation process. So he didn't say 
two males or two females. He didn't say that. He doesn't have to. And then he, when the apostles approached him about these passages, he said, some are born eunuchs. Some are forced to eunuchs by the will of men. Some make themselves eunuchs for the, for the sake of the kingdom of God. Let him who can accept it, accept it. He, he did say, he did point to the creation process that God made them man and woman. I, I'm not going to bring up the passage right now, but it's in the scriptures. It's in the gospels. You can look them up. Just, you can even Google it. Just ask Google about it and you'll, you'll get these passages. He didn't have to bring up homosexuality because it was already accepted. The problem was when you get to the Gentile world, it gets a little bit more complicated and a little bit more, you know, di you know, especially in the Roman Empire where prostitution and sex trafficking was part of the business. And when you have power like that over people, over people's lives, when you sell people in the marketplace, when you have power over men and women and children in the marketplace, it invites abuse and invites sexual abuse on all levels. Okay, we know this because we talk about it today. It's really hilarious how we talk about sex trafficking and then we talk about uh, indoctrinating children and, and inviting them to go through re, um, sex change operations, uh, chemical castration, things like that. And then we talk about sex trafficking across the border. Don't you see the hypocrisy of the whole thing? The perversion of it? This is why I'm saying you can bring religion into the arena. If this is what, what Nancy Pelosi wants to promote, the kind of culture she wants to promote, if this is what Bernie Sanders wants to promote, if this is what Chuck Schumer wants to promote, at the same time, willingly... Um, encourage assassination of Supreme Court judges, right? Giving threats and not being called out upon and punished, then I can say we can bring religion into the arena. Okay? This is the problem we're talking about here. The hypocrisy of, of Catholic politicians Christ, who, who claim to be Christian but are not Christian. It's, it's all there in front of you. This is why Paul is saying, do not use the Eucharist for your own advantage. Do not use it to partying. Do not use it to, to, to have power over your, your neighbor. Nancy Pelosi used the liturgy. She used the sacrament for power. I'm, I'm not just picking on her directly. She's just one example of a Catholic politician who, who pretty much does everything wrong and who pretty much is hurting people by her own actions. But she doesn't think so because, you know, she thinks she's all fine and everything. And, and she scandalizes the faith. I'm sorry. She scandalizes the faith. She's a high-ranking person. The reason why I can pick on her 
is because her actions, her moral, her moral, her immoral stance are publicly known. She made it publicly known what she believes in. She made it part of her business. She made it, she used it to her advantage. She exploited it her, to her advantage so she can get elected. So that I can say these things because she has made them public. I'm not picking on her for any personal reason except for the fact of the abuse of the faith and scandalizing other people. And I'm trying to say to people, do not let another politician like her ever come around again and do the same thing because we have to clear out the mess in the church and we as lay people, it has to start with us and how we behave. We have to demand better liturgies. We have to demand better accountability by our clerics. We have to demand that our, bish our bishops behave as bishops and not, not rub elbows with corrupt politicians like her. Sorry, people, but we have to change. She, we cannot allow her to abuse the Eucharist, right? Yes, the bishop has to step up to his plate. We, we don't have, have, we don't have that authority. The bishop does. But unfortunately, a lot of bishops want to be liked. And so they're willing to be liked. And it's, it, unfortunately, they're not, they're too scared to say anything. So we have to do something. We have to, we have to demand, we have to protest in front of them. We have to hold back on our pocketbooks from putting things, from putting money in the, um, in, uh, the basket, uh, tithing. We have to, we have to hold back on that. There's a lot of things. We have to demand more, better preaching, preaching about morality, not, uh, the social justice crap. That social justice crap doesn't do any good. All right. Let's go to the articles. All right, this is an article from America Magazine, the Jesuit Review. Uh, it's uh, under faith, faith in focus. And this is by a, um, a Jesuit priest, Father John Whitney, SJ. It's May 31st, 2022. So it's, uh, you know, it's almost a month old. At least we're getting there, right? Not exactly, but we're getting there. As in one of those fluffy, uh, usual Jesuit nonsense, um, you know, they're uh, very much just hidden with Marxism. It's basically a hit piece against uh, uh, Archbishop uh, Salvatore Corleone because of this whole thing with Nancy Pelosi and um, the Jesuits. Basically, you know, he's just probably in the same school of Father James Martin of uh, fluffy theological nonsense, Jesuit nonsense. So let's begin. I love the Eucharist. Already, it's, uh, it's, it's fluffy nonsense. Indeed, there is no time in my day when I feel more myself than when I'm celebrating with a community of faith already. The word community of faith. Notice, notice, uh, notice that. That's also part of the, the, uh, the, uh, what do you call modernist, uh, you know, 
lexicon of language, with the community of faith, the mystery of love given to us on the altar at this table. You see, he went from altar to table. The Spirit of God fulfills the promise of Christ by transforming the gifts of field and vine into the body and blood of the Lord. Here, bread and wine, gifts freely given to us, which we now return in offering, become the presence of God. This occurs not, not through the power of the priest, nor through the merit of those present, but through the fidelity of Christ, who constantly responds to the faith of the people of God with incarnate love. Here, the gift of the Spirit is offered to us through this living memorial of Christ's death and resurrection. In such an exchange, the priest's role is that of minister, servant of the one who prepares the feast and spokesperson for the church who gathers to receive it. This communion with God is not magic. The works of institution and consecration are not incantations that force God to act. Rather, it is a miracle, a free action of God beyond anything nature can achieve, beyond anything nature can achieve or human beings can rightfully expect. Of all the sacraments, the Eucharist is the most treasured because in its simplicity it proclaims all that is accomplished through incarnation. The welcome of the stranger, the healing of the child. I'm, I'm sorry, the healing, the welcome of the stranger, the healing of the sinful, the inclusion of the alienated, the sanctifi sanctification of the people of God through constant irrevocable communion in Christ. These are not things that, that we accomplish or earn, but things that God accomplishes in us and for, and for us. Whenever we stand hungry at the altar, whenever we open our, our hearts and hands to receive the God's gift, clericalism, okay, this is a, a pullout from his tweet. Clericalism emerges when those called, when those called the minister of the sacraments begin to believe that the sacraments belong to them. This is, this is so bad. The original sin of the church, clericalism, emerges when those so-called to minister the sacraments begin to believe that the sacraments belong to them or are products of their special powers as God's chosen vessels. In such cases, instead of being servants at the table of the Lord, the ordinate Minister, the ordinate minister begins to act like he is the, the host, empowered to set up uh, criteria of reception not present in the example of Christ. The Eucharist itself, the mystery of God's presence given to the people of God, becomes a tool to be used according to, dis to the discretion ruling clerics. In such times, access to the sacraments is denied, granted not according to the conscience by which God speaks to the heart of the individual, but according to the power of the of the clerical authority. All right, let me just say here. What's the point of being a bishop? What's the point of being a bishop? If if the foot was on the if the shoe was on the other foot, and let's say they decided to 
ban a Catholic politician, um, Republican, and let's say the argument over this over the um, the right to bear arms, uh, the Second Amendment, I believe. This this is used to the the Democrats decide they want to push the bishop to deny holy communion to a politician who who does who does not want to um, sign the bill on uh, what do you call it um, a bill. He refuses to sign a bill on new gun laws, and they decide, you know, like, like maybe he could even restrict putting more restrictions on owning a gun, and they, and people were pushing the bishop to deny this person holy communion, this politician, holy communion. So you see what I'm saying? It's hypocritical. They would do it. They would do it, and. They would probably be successful in their own in, in, in their own way. But this is what I'm trying to say is that this is what Holy Communion is all about. This you have to be free of any of the immoralness of this world and focus only on God. This is this is this is this is what I'm talking about. It's hypocritical. They 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 don't want to deny Nancy Pelosi or any other politician who refuses to sign a bill. Let's say, let's say, let's say the bill over the idea of indoctrinating children with LGBT, but they're doing it, or a bill that comes along that wants to save the lives of children to deny, to stop them from being forced into uh, taking trans, uh, a, a, a trans drug, and they want and they want that bill signed, right? They would enforce. You know, they wouldn't. They would use the church. They wouldn't use it. They would abuse the church and use the church. They do it already, but this is what I'm saying. We have to take it back. As conservatives, conservatives for many, many years since I can remember growing up, they didn't want to rock the boat. They didn't want to put the spotlight on themselves. They're not interested in grabbing that much attention. I don't think you have a choice anymore. Okay, every every single time a conservative wins. They'll, they'll, uh, and it, the person goes against their, 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 their mode, right? Just recently, a young woman from uh, South Texas, um, she came in and she won, and they're calling her white supremacy. They're calling her all kinds of stuff that is baloney and wood crap. This is the, this is it. This is what I'm saying. They're going to abuse it. They're going to abuse it. You know. A politician that supports transitioning, chemical castration, or giving little kids uh, a, a abortion medicated drugs, or passing a law that forces the little ones to go get an abortion, uh, taking the power, uh, taking the the custody of the kids out of the parents technically, because that's what you're doing, and if the parents oppose them, you you just shut them down, call them white supremacists. Do you realize the hypocrisy? We have to take back the faith in the public arena. We have to do it because we're not going to get another opportunity like this again. We have to do it. Okay, let me just make myself a little bit more clear from the last segment. Yeah, the young woman by the name, I think her name is Myra Flores. She uh, is of Mexican background. She's a woman of color. She actually, I saw a tweet 
or she said, an interview in Fox News or Newsmax. They say they care about women. They represent women. I'm a woman. They don't represent me. They say they, they stand for people of color. I'm a person of color. They don't represent me. They don't speak for me. They say they're for immigrants. She herself, I think, comes from an immigrant background. No, they don't care. They don't represent her. What she's saying is they don't represent her values. She says that they don't represent my values. They don't represent my beliefs. But because she doesn't, she chose to be a Republican because all the things that she listed, all her values, all her beliefs, they don't represent. So they start calling someone like her a white supremacist. They'll call her all kinds of names. They'll call her an extremist. They'll attack her because of her Christian or uh, if, if, I don't know if she's Catholic, but whatever her Christian moral values are, let's just say that they themselves will, will attack her, trash her, ruin her reputation, smear her name. And they're, they're losing the Hispanic vote. This is what I'm trying to say is that we as lay people, our clerics have been compromised. I'm sorry. They've been compromised. And we have to, we, I think from a grassroot level, have to take back the moral high ground. Sadly, without our shepherds. All right. And all this stuff here, what they're saying here, this, this priest here, what he says in his last in this article, I haven't even finished the article yet. He mentioned how valuable and how beautiful the Eucharist is. Well, when, when something is that valuable and that beautiful, shouldn't you uh, protect it from desecration? Why do you lock the Eucharist in a tabernacle with a key? Right? Why do you do that? Why, I mean, if it's, it, it, they, they call it, they love to use this new thing now, medicine for the poor, medicine for the sick. I'm sorry. Well, if it's medicine for the sick, if it's the most treasured, use the word treasured. So therefore, something that's treasured, valuable, should be guarded and protected from abuse. Obviously, the father is contradicting himself because he's using uh, words that contradict what he's trying to do. He wants to make it accessible for someone. This is all basically, like I said, it's a hit piece against the bishop, the good bishop. That's what it is. Anyway, let's continue. Uh, and he's talking about clerical authority, about clericalism, right? This is this is great. The original sin of the church, clericalism, emerges when those called to minister the sacraments begin to believe that the sacraments belong to them or a product of their special power as God's chosen vessels. All right. Car horns. The sacraments begin to believe that the sacraments... Uh, okay, the ministers of the sacrament begin to believe that the sacraments belong to them or a product of their special powers as God's chosen vessels. In such cases, instead of being a servant at the table of the Lord, the Lord, the ordained minister begins to act like he is the host, empowered to set up criteria of reception, not present in the example of Christ. The Eucharist itself 
the mystery of Christ's presence given to the people of God become a tool, uh, uh, becomes a tool to be used according to discretion of the ruling cleric. In such times, acts as a sacrament is denied or granted, not according to the conscience by which God speaks to the heart of the individual, but according to the power of the clerical authority. Okay, first of all, Christ ordained 12 men. Mary Magdalene is not named. Joanna is not named. Okay? It's 12 men. He ordained 12 men. And he gave them the authority to preach and teach. This priest is contradicting himself. He's, he's, he, he really is. He's, I'm going to use a term. He's gaslighting. Okay? Yes, St. Paul, I just read, set up rules to Holy Communion. He's, he's basically weaponizing the whole thing and he's confusing. If the person, here he is, the minister of Holy, of the sacraments, he's referred to, he refers to the priest as the minister of the Holy Sacrament. A minister has some form of authority. Right? So there should be rules. There should be rules and how and, and how you're supposed to Paul said himself. He he talked about the abuse of the people. So, you know, he's he's you know, he's gaslighting. He's you know Okay, such um Okay. Such a vision is contrary to the practice of Jesus in the New Testament and the notion of minister a ministry uh, exemplified in the early church. Far from being the gatekeepers of the Eucharist, the ordained are, are called to help the gift of the Eucharist and become fully visible for God's people by welcoming and inviting all, all people in imitation of Christ. In this role, one might well quote St. Paul, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. <laughs> I just read to you where Paul says, "I will clear things up when I get there." I, you know, I, I know myself. This is unbelievable. He's he's you know he's cherry picking verses here. He's cherry picking verses. I can tell you, he's cherry picking verses here. You know it yourself. Just go read those passages, uh, Corinthians chapter ten and chapter eleven about the Eucharist. You can see for yourself. He's cherry picking. Okay, uh, he quoted Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. As Pope Francis reminds us, yes, remind us that your Pope is a Jesuit. Pope Francis reminds us such ministry should inspire humility in all those called as pastors. For the gift, gifts we minister do not belong to us. It is not by our goodness that the table, I hate the word table, is set not by our power that the common element of bread and wine become vessels of grace and divine presence, not by our virtue that the, pre the Spirit of God moves in the hearts of believers. All these are the works of Christ through his body, the church, which has authority. Okay, he is really shuffling things around. Paul talked about how the body, certain parts, have greater position than the other he's he's you know certain parts of your body like your eyes and your ears hold a higher value position 
but it's equal to the rest of the body still. I mean, you know, there, there's there's a position of authority and there's a position uh, uh, the subordinate. And these guys don't want to talk about that. Far from being the gatekeepers of the Eucharist, the ordained are called to help the gift of the Eucharist to become fully visible for God's people by welcoming and inviting all people in imitation of Christ. I, You know, it sounds so flowery. I mean, I just can't stand it. It just sounds so flowery. I, 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 I hate this kind of flowery talk. Unlike the priesthood of Unlike the priesthood of Aaron in the Old Testament, the minister of Christ's church are not uniquely chosen to pass through the curtain of the sanctuary and to make sacrifice to God on behalf of the people. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has offered that sacrifice once and for all, and through the gifts of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the Holy Sanctuary has now become the whole world. This is what the Second Vatican Council meant by the priesthood of all believers. He is mixing words, and he's wrong. There is a universal priesthood, but there's also a priesthood with authority. All are baptized in Christ. All have been uh, ordained in Christ, but there's, there's not, it's not the same thing. All right. It's like the family members in the household. You got mom and dad. You're all members of the same household. All right. But you don't have access to dad's bank account. Your dad pays the bills, not you. Right? You're all passengers in the car, but only one is in the driver's seat. See, he's mixing, he's mixing words. All right, let's continue. Okay, he goes on here. Um, let me see here. This what the second Vatican council meant by the priesthood of the old believers. While some of us may be called to lifelong service through an ordination and, and such ordination does not play, uh, place a cleric above the church, it does not make the priest or bishop a mediator between God and God's people. Rather, ordination makes one a servant of the medita uh, mediation that Christ himself has achieved through the blood of his cross. You know, he, he's contradicting. First of all, the priest is the one who's ordained. The priest is the one who gets to say the words of the Eucharist. Not I. I can't do it. The priest is the one who um, has the authority to hear my, hear my sins and, and during confession and give me absolution. I can't go to Sister Wendy for that. You see what I'm saying? He's contradicting himself. He knows he is, but he's hoping you don't know it. Unbelievable. While some of us may be called to a lifelong service through ordination. All right, I, I read this part here. It's just, it's, just, it's just so bad. Today, while Pope Francis promotes humility in pastoral leadership, where those who preach recognize the heart of their community. I hate that. I hate that word community. It's so, it, you know, it, it, there's so much misrepresentation in that word. There's so much uh, bad, you know, it, I just don't like it. It's bad. And see with it. Okay. Uh, recognize the heart, the heart of the, of their community and see where the desire for God is lively and ordained. 
there are others in the church who wish to control uh, to control access to the Eucharist and to use the body and blood of, of Christ as a um, God, I, the word here, I guess, club to punish or train, ignoring that the sacrament of both, both is Christ and belongs to Christ. And such church authorities on the on their own initiative and often in opposition to the larger church take on the role of guardian of the altar or the uh, bouncer from the feast, usurping the role of Christ who calls all to the table. You see, right there he doesn't understand. He contradicts himself, the ordained minister. All right? He contradicts himself. Someone who's ordained has to have a position of authority. All right? Those who preach and recognize the heart of the community and see, okay, he goes on. There are others in the church who wish to control acts of the Eucharist and to use the body and blood of Christ as a, I guess, club, ignoring that the sacrament is both in Christ and belongs to Christ. And such and, and such church authorities on their own initiative and often in opposition to the church take on the role of guardian. He doesn't understand. He uses the word church and he uses he uses it, but he doesn't understand there still has to be a structure to make that church. The same way there's a structure that makes a family. You know, he doesn't really get that. And, you know, he and he likes to use table, and he actually calls him bouncer on the role of guardian of the altar or the bouncer from the feast. First of all, there is, there are, there are, I mean, come on. You know, they just, they, it's, it's really, this is really such unbelievably hogwash nonsense. And here's this part. I got something to throw at him here. This is a tweet again. Jesus never comes with a threat, never teaches by withholding his presence, even if this even even to the spending of his life. First of all, did not he did he not go into the courtyard of of the merchants? Did he not chase them out? That was authority. Did he not say, If you do you will die in your sins if you do not believe in me? He says that in John's Gospel. I don't like it when they do this, when he, he's really, but first of all, he's not speaking to someone like me. He knows someone like me knows how to argue some of, some of the things he's saying. This is the same guy. This guy here, I'm sure has drank the same Kool-Aid that father James Martin has drank. In this sacrament, Jesus speaks to the heart of his people and forms them as he feeds them. Christ never withholds food to impose obedience. Rather, he sets his table among the sinners and gains their hearts by pouring out his body and blood. Submission to him comes from his submission in the love to us. His teaching comes in word and act, in healing of the leper and calling of the tax collectors. Jesus never comes with a threat, never teaches by withholding his presence, even to the spending of his life. If you do not repent of your sins, if you do not believe in me, you will die in your sins. That doesn't sound like a threat. That doesn't sound like it sounds, doesn't sound like a warning. Seriously, you see, he's. Well, we must, while we must, in humility, respect the authority of, te of teachers in the church, those who seeks to teach by withholding the Eucharist, abuse the very sacrament they claim to defend. If you're not going to repent of your sin, 
then why do you want to receive communion if you do not wish to conform to the gospel? He kept a lot of things out. This is the problem with, with, the, with, this, with this priest. He keeps a lot of things out, and he's really, this is really bad. Father John Whitney, S.J. It's just, it's just really bad. All right, let's go to the next one, the, the article that, uh, that responds to this. All right, this is from June 14th, and this is a response. This is from Crisis Magazine, and a response to uh, the Jesuit. Um, okay, here it is. A colleague of mine whom I greatly respect just sent me an article from America Magazine, a Jesuit publication which I have very little respect. Read, read it and weep, he advised. This I have to, don't fully done along with a fair amount of fury for which I may have to go to confession. <laughs> I, okay, I guess I'll have to do the same thing. Yeah, the title of the piece coming coming on the heels of Archbishop Cordelion's decision to ban Nancy Pelosi from the Eucharist says it all. I don't think we should be banning everyone, anyone from the Eucharist. Really? No limits at all? What about the unbaptized? Are they free to receive? What about Satanists? Must we extend the Eucharist etiquette to avowed enemies of the God? People who, by their own admission, regularly show up in communion lines for the host to desecrate at black masses. The authority, the the author does not say. The author, by by the way, is a Jesuit priest. No surprise there, by the name of John Whitney whose current assignment at a parish in San Francisco puts him perhaps within spitting distance of where the archbishop lives, which hardly matters. I should think, since there's plenty of spite in, in the essay, essay itself, all slyly spewed, of course, Father Whitney not having quite the spittle to tell his archbishop to his face what he really thinks of him. Instead, we get statements of high sanctimony, like the, like, like the following, which are fairly uh, typical these days among progressives, elements within the church. While we must, in humility, respect the author, the authority of teachers, we read this part in the church, those who seek to teach by withholding the Eucharist abuse, uh, abuse the very sacrament they claim to, def- to defend. Even if we acknowledge that through a just process and an extreme circumstance, a baptized Catholic may be sanctioned by the church, we must question the individual bishop who uses the Eucharist in a pro- uh, preemptory manner without process or appeal. One who seeks to teach by withholding the Eucharist abuses the very sacrament he claims to defend. One must surely wonder at claims such as these. Does he really think what Archbishop Cordelion has done amounts to an abuse of the Eucharist? But what... But, um, but that the pro-death Catholic politician who presents herself for communion is not abusing the sacrament, and that the manner of his uh, of his exercise of episcopal authority regarding Pelosi has been so preemptory as to disqualify him from from deciding, does he even know the meaning of the word that it ind- indicates a course of action, leaving no room for discussion, with the expectation that the ones. Opponent 
will instantly submit to the higher the higher authority. Yeah, you see that he's he's saying it very well. Is he clueless of the history between Corleone and Pelosi that he simply unaware of years spent in unremitting effort to get her even to show up for a conversation, discussion? There hasn't been any. One might as well describe uh, Churchill's declaration of war on Adolf Hitler as preemptory, in so much as it amounted to a failure or a British diplomacy to keep the dialogue going. In some cases, yes, it is better to keep the talking, but not without the other side is determined to take out all of Europe. When an when not, not altogether uh, fair, far-fetched comparison, by the way, when the side represents represented by Speaker Pelosi has been these past 50 years taking out the lives of 60 or more million children and in Pelosi's case certainly claiming to justify it all on the grounds of Catholic faith. Unbelievable. He's right. This uh, part here begins. The effrontery uh, <laughs> The effrontery of the woman is more than mortal flesh will bear. At some point, surely, it becomes necessary to call her out on it. By applying the only available sanction that just might awaken her to the peril she has placed herself in. But one will search in vain for anything remotely approaching concern for her soul on the part of our Jesuit author. He is far too fixed fixated upon the dis, uh, delinquencies of his own archbishop, whom he accuses of clericalism, no greater sin than which can be imagined. The original sin of the church, he calls it clericalism, emerges when those called to minister the sacrament begin to believe that the sacraments belong to them or are a product of their special power as God's chosen vessel. In other words, not contended to remain the servant of the Lord and his people. The ordained minister begins to act like he is the host, empowered to set up criteria of reception, not present in example of Christ. Once this happens, he warns, and the clericalist has secured access to the Eucharist, he is thereupon free to use the body and blood of Christ as a, a gudgel. Okay, I couldn't fix the word, but I use this like a I guess you could say uh, a club I use to punish or, or train, assuming in effect the role of guardian of the altar or the bouncer from the feast, usurping the role of Christ who calls, who, who calls all to the table. So Archbishop Colleon has now become the church's very own self-appointed bouncer. Well, he's certainly taken his time in assuming that role, hasn't he? Years and years, in fact, leaving not a few of his supporters wondering if he's ever, if he ever would. As for the one who calls all to the table, is there anyone on record denying it? Certainly not the archbishop. But as regard Christ's invitation, doesn't that rather depend on whether or not all who are called see themselves primarily as sinners in need of healing the mercy of Jesus Christ? What if they don't think they need it? Their souls having grown so uh, so cold by sin that they no longer see the church of who and what they become, but they persist in showing up anyway. Uh, 
so convinced are they of their essential sinlessness, how in sense they they then become of one uh, of of one. If, um, sorry, if one were to point out to them, even when their own bishop tries to tell them. But if Father Whitney is not on board with uh, any of this, he just doesn't get it. Nancy Pelosi simply does not regard her status in the church as the, as that of a sinner. It is rather her big, bad archbishop who is the sinner. And God help him if he tries to refuse her admission to the feast. This is by Regis Martin, this article in Crisis Magazine. He's a professor of theology, a faculty associate of the Veritas Center for Ethics and Public Life at the Franciscan University of Steubenville. He earned a, um, a doctorate in sacred theology from the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas in Rome. Martin is the author of a number of books, including Still Point, Lost Longing, and Our Search for God, and The Beggar's Banquet, Emmaus Road. His most recent book, published by Scepter, is called Looking for Lazarus, a Preview of the, uh, of the Resurrection. He's right. And I think the Jesuit here, because you see, this is one of the things I keep arguing. They don't want to talk about sin. He never mentioned sin in that article, the Jesuit, when he said, I don't think we should be. He, they don't talk about sin. That's a word they don't mention anymore. They don't believe in sin anymore. To them, uh, what you damage the environment is 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 sinful. That's sin to them. Um, if you're against transgenderism, that's a sin to them. Uh, if you're against immigration, all social justice stuff, because they don't talk about theological. Father James Martin and, and I think some of his Jesuit cronies don't even know what sin is if it bit them right on the whatever. It, they just don't care. And I have to agree that this is a problem here. This is a problem and this is where it has to change. I honestly, I hope one day, and I mean, maybe, you know, I'm sorry to say that, but I have, I have a book here on the, the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius, and it's a very good book. St. Ignatius focused a lot on sin. What happened with these guys? What happened was it was Marxism. I really would love it if a pope would just get rid of them, sponge them out, get rid of the Jesuits. The Jesuits, I think the way their order is structured, it makes it impossible for them. They're not like a monastic order. They don't have that structure of a monastic order. They need to have that structure. I think they sh this particular Jesuit order has to be completely gotten rid of and you need to restructure the sons of St. Ignatius. And I think you have to restructure them differently. Not the same way. They have to be more monastic and they have to be more, uh, I think, accountable. In this case, they're too independent. They're too much like uh, a Wild West. And they're, they're pretty much an authority unto themselves. And that's bad. I think that's not good. I don't think you can have that anymore in this, in this, um, in this time because they've done so much damage. There's so much heresy. There's so much confusion. You got to get rid of them. You have to get rid of them. All right, um, I'm gonna end it here, and uh, I'll get back with the uh, with something else. All right, God bless.